Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, The Greatest Commandments. It's based upon the lectionary readings for October 25th, 2020. I believe it's my generation that ruined the word awesome. I was in college when the adjective went viral and everything became awesome. Friday night's pizza party, the guest professor's Shakespeare lecture, my roommate's new haircut, ice cream. It didn't take long for the once rich and evocative word to deflate. Nowadays, few people hear the word awesome and feel the spine-tingling sense of wonder, apprehension, surprise, and astonishment the word is supposed to inspire. Awesome has become a dull word, sort of like nice or cool. As a Christian, I fear that the same might be said of another word, a word central to the faith, a word Jesus himself used to sum up the whole of his identity and mission, a word upon which, he said, hang all the law and the prophets. What's the word? Love. The word is love. In our lectionary reading from Matthew's Gospel this week, the Pharisees ask Jesus yet another test question. Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus answers without a moment's hesitation, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. On these two commandments hang everything else that matters in this world, period. May I take a moment here to point out what Jesus doesn't say in response to the Pharisees' question? Remember, at this point in the story, Jesus' crucifixion is just days away. Death is literally breathing down his neck, and he is rapidly running out of opportunities to communicate the heart of his message. But when he is asked what matters most in a life of faith, Jesus doesn't say, believe the right things. He doesn't say, maintain personal and doctrinal purity. He doesn't say, worship like this or attend a church like that. He doesn't even say, read your Bible or pray every day or preach the gospel to every living creature. He says, love. That's it. All of Christianity distilled down to its essence so that maybe we'll pause long enough to hear it. Love. Love God and love your neighbor. Okay, but what does it mean to do this? How are we to love? This is where I fear our overuse, misuse, and even abuse of the word love gets us into trouble. We claim to love many things. We love our favorite celebrities, movies, bands, and television shows. We love going on vacation or reading a well-crafted novel or watching our favorite team play football. We love chocolate or bacon or sushi or chicken tikka masala. In other words, shaped as we are by Hollywood, romance novels, contemporary praise and worship music, and tabloid magazines, we tend to think of love as a feeling, a spontaneous and free-flowing feeling that arises out of our own enjoyment, our own sense of kinship and affinity. We don't think of it as a discipline, as obedience, as practice, as exercise. We fall in love. We insist that love is blind, that it happens at first sight, that it breaks our heart, and that its course never runs smooth. We talk and think about love as if we have little power or agency in its presence. This is not how the Bible describes love. Jesus doesn't say, love is my greatest advice or suggestion. He doesn't say, I sure hope love happens to you. He says, love is the greatest and first commandment, meaning it's not a matter of personal affinity, feeling, or preference. It's not a matter of lucky accident. 
It's a matter of obedience to the one we call Lord. When I look at my own life, it's not too hard to name why I perpetually fail to obey the greatest commandments. Love is vulnerable-making, and I'd rather not be vulnerable. Love requires trust, and I'm naturally suspicious. Love spills over margins and boundaries, and I feel safer and holier policing my borders. Love takes time, effort, discipline, and transformation, and I am just so darned busy. What would it cost us to take Jesus' version of love seriously? To feel a depth of compassion that's gut-punching? To experience a hunger for justice so fierce and so urgent that we rearrange our lives in order to pursue it? To empathize until our hearts break? Do we even want to? Most of the time, I'll be honest, I don't. I want to be safe. I want to keep my circle small and manageable, and I want to choose the people I love based on my own affinities and preferences, not on Jesus' all-inclusive commandments. Charitable actions are easy, but cultivating my heart, preparing and pruning it to love, becoming vulnerable in authentic ways to the world's pain, those things are hard, hard and costly. And yet this is the call, which means that we have a God who first and foremost wants our love, not our fear, penitence, or piety. And we have a God who wants every one of God's children to also feel loved by us, not shamed, not punished, not chastised, not judged, but loved. I don't think it's a coincidence or a mistake that Jesus inextricably links love of God with love of neighbor. Each reinforces, reinterprets, and revives the other. As heirs of the Incarnation, we cannot love God while we refuse to love what God loves. We cannot love God in a disinfected, disembodied way that doesn't touch the dirt and depth of this world, the skin and bone and blood. Neither can we love ourselves or our neighbors in any meaningful, sustainable way if that love is not sourced and replenished in an abiding love for God. In other words, emotion of our hearts must be cyclical, love of God making possible and deepening our love of neighbor, and love of neighbor putting flesh and bones on our love for God. In his beautiful commentary on this gospel, Lutheran minister Clayton Schmidt writes this, Quote, to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul seems nearly impossible when we think of love as an emotion. How does one conjure up feelings for something as remote, mysterious, and disembodied as the concept of God? We cannot look into God's eyes, wrap our arms around the Spirit, or even see the face of Jesus. Likewise, loving our neighbor is difficult. If love is merely our passive response to the person next to us, we are likely to be more often repulsed than moved to love. How can one legitimately look into the face of an enemy and feel unqualified love? It is nearly impossible. But biblical love is not passive. It is not something that occurs to us without our control or will. Biblical love is something we do. So what is it that we are commanded to do? I believe the call is to follow in the footsteps of the one who stood in the presence of his accusers and enemies and declared love the be-all and end-all. The call is to weep with those who weep to laugh with those who laugh, to touch the untouchables, feed the hungry, welcome the children, release the captives, forgive the sinners, confront the oppressors, comfort the oppressed, wash each other's feet, hold each other close, and tell each other the truth. The call is to guide each other home. In the church I attend, we've been ending our evening prayer liturgy on Sundays with a blessing from a Black Rock prayer book. It leaves me teary-eyed every time I hear it, so I'd like to share it with you in closing. The world now is too dangerous and too beautiful for anything but love. 
May your eyes be so blessed you see God in everyone. Your ears, so you hear the cry of the poor. May your hands be so blessed that everything you touch is a sacrament. Your lips, so you speak nothing but the truth with love. May your feet be so blessed you run to those who need you. And may your heart be so opened, so set on fire, that your love, your love, changes everything. And may the blessing of the God who created you, loves you, and sustains you be with you now and always. May it be so. For books this week, Dan reviews This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto by Suketu Mehta. Suketu Mehta's family moved from Bombay to New York City on October 1st, 1977, when he was a young boy. His manifesto, which he admits was written out of sorrow and rage, is both deeply personal and unapologetically polemical. Today, Mehta is an associate professor of journalism at New York University. His previous book, Maximum City, Bombay Lost and Found, was a finalist for the 2005 Pulitzer Prize. Mehta begins with the observation that many people have made that immigration is the defining issue of our globalized world. About 250 million people today live in a country other than the one in which they were born. Another 750 million say they want to move from the land of their birth and will do so if given the chance. There are 65 million refugees all around the world who have been forcibly removed from their homes. There's Lebanon, where a third of the population are refugees. 30 million stateless Kurds, over a million Syrians in Jordan, which would be the rough equivalent of 60 million refugees in the United States. In Mehta's view, immigrants moved to other countries for clear reasons. The history of colonialism, i.e. British India, French Algier, or the Belgian Congo, what he calls the new corporate colonialism, wars, and climate change. He also examines at length the populist and xenophobic narratives that cause us to fear the stranger. In the last part of the book, he suggests a number of positive reasons why we should welcome immigrants instead of fearing them. I think there are better resources on this important subject. I especially appreciated The Line Becomes a River by Francisco Cantu, The Faraway Brothers by Lauren Markham, The Memoir Tears of Salt by the Italian doctor Pietro Bartolo, The Novel Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and the documentary film Human Flow by Ai Weiwei. But Mehta is right in this regard. There are some important things that ought to make us angry and that call for our compassion. I am not calling for open borders, he writes. I'm calling for open hearts. For films this week, Dan reviews Unorthodox. This Netflix miniseries was released at the height of the COVID-19 crisis, March 26, 2020, and immediately gained a lot of traction. The four episodes are loosely based on the real-life story of Deborah Feldman, as told in her memoir, Unorthodox, The Scandalous Rejection of My Hasidic Roots. The one-hour episodes tell the story of a 19-year-old woman named Esti Shapiro. When pregnant and very unhappy in her arranged marriage in her ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community in Brooklyn, Esti runs away to Berlin, where she tries to connect with her estranged mother, Leah, who also left the Hasidic community years earlier. Learning to live a secular life is a challenge when you know absolutely nothing about the outside world, like wearing blue jeans. Making matters worse, her husband, Yankee, back in Brooklyn, is commanded by his rabbi to go to Berlin and, quote, bring that girl back. The miniseries has a distinction of being the first Netflix movie to be made mainly in Yiddish. 
For two other movies about the Hasidic community in Brooklyn, see my reviews of Minashi, 2017, which tells the story of a lovable but hapless grocer who, against tradition, tries to keep custody of his son after his wife dies. And then, One of Us. The latter movie is a real-life documentary about three people who tried to leave their Hasidic community and were hounded, harassed, and tracked down for doing so. And lastly, for poetry this week, Christ Has No Body by Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for October 25th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.